Chapter Seven of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Seven, Ulanga. Mister Salton had an appointment for six o'clock at Liverpool. When he had driven off, Sir Nathaniel took Adam by the arm. May I come with you for a while to your study? I want to speak to you privately without your uncle knowing about it, or even what the subject is. You don't mind, do you? It is not idle curiosity. No, 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 no. It is on the subject to which we are all committed. Is it necessary to keep my uncle in the dark about it? He might be offended. It is not necessary, but it is advisable. It is for his sake that I asked. My friend is an old man, and it might concern him unduly, even alarm him. I promise you that there shall be nothing that could cause him anxiety in our silence, or at which he could take umbrage. Go on, sir," said Adam simply. "You see, your uncle is now an old man. I know it, for we were boys together. He has led an uneventful and somewhat self-contained life, so that any such condition of things as has now arisen is apt to perplex him from its very strangeness. In fact, any new matter is trying to old people. It has its own disturbances and its own anxieties, and neither of these things are good for lives that should be restful. Your uncle is a strong man with a very happy and placid nature. Given health and ordinary conditions of life, there is no reason why he should not live to be a hundred. You and I, therefore, who both love him, though in different ways, should make it our business to protect him from all disturbing influences. I am sure you will agree with me that any labor to this end would be well spent. All right, my boy. I see your answer in your eyes. So we need say no more of that. And now. Here his voice changed. Tell me all that took place at that interview. There are strange things in front of us. How strange we cannot, at present, even guess. Doubtless, some of the difficult things to understand, which lie behind the veil, will in time be shown to us to see and to understand. In the meantime, all we can do is to work patiently, fearlessly, and unselfishly, to an end that we think is right. You had got so far as where Lilla opened the door to Mr. Caswell and the Negro. You also observed that Mimi was disturbed in her mind at the way Mr. Caswell looked at her cousin. Certainly, though disturbed is a poor way of expressing her objection. Can you remember well enough to describe Caswell's eyes and how Lilla looked and what Mimi said and did? Also, Ulanga, Caswell's West African servant. I'll do what I can, sir. All the time Mr. Caswell was staring, he kept his eyes fixed and motionless, but not as if he was in a trance. His forehead was wrinkled up, as it is when one is trying to see through or into something. At the best of times, his face was not a gentle expression, but when it was screwed up like that, it was almost diabolical. It frightened poor Lilla so that she trembled, and after a bit got so pale that I thought she had fainted. However, she held up and tried to stare back. But in a feeble kind of way, then Mimi came close and held her hand. That braced her up, and still never ceasing her return stare, she got color again and seemed more like herself. Did he stare too? More than ever, the weaker Lilla seemed, the stronger he became, just as if he were feeding on her strength. All at once, she turned round, threw up her hands, and fell down in a faint. I could not see what else happened just then, for Mimi had thrown herself on her knees beside her and hid her from me. Then there was something like a black shadow between us, 
and there was the nigger looking more like a malignant devil than ever. I'm not usually a patient man, and the sight of that ugly devil is enough to make one's blood boil. When he saw my face he seemed to realize danger, immediate danger, and slunk out of the room as noiselessly as if he had been blown out. I learned one thing, however. He is an enemy, if ever a man had one. "'That still leaves us three to two, put in Sir Nathaniel. Then Caswell slunk out, much as the nigger had done. When he had gone, Lilla recovered at once. "'Now,' said Sir Nathaniel, anxious to restore peace, "'have you found out anything yet regarding the negro? I am anxious to be posted regarding him. I fear there will be, or may be, grave trouble with him.' "'Yes, sir, I have heard a great deal about him. Of course it is not official, but hearsay must guide us at first. "'You know my man Davenport, private secretary, confidential man of business, and general factorum. "'He is devoted to me, and has my full confidence. "'I asked him to stay on board the West African, and have a good look round, and find out what he could about Mr. Coswell. "'Naturally he was struck with the aboriginal savage. "'He found one of the ship's stewards.' who had been on the regular voyages to South Africa. He knew Ulanga, and had made a study of him. He is a man who gets on well with niggers, and they open their hearts to him. It seems that this Ulanga is quite a great person in the nigger world of the African West Coast. He has the two things which men of his own color respect. He can make them afraid, and he is lavish with money. I don't know whose money, but that does not matter. They are always ready to trumpet his greatness. Evil greatness it is, but neither does that matter. Briefly, this is his history. He was originally a witch-finder, about as low an occupation as exists amongst aboriginal savages. Then he got up in the world and became an obi-man, which gives an opportunity to wealth, via blackmail. Finally, he reached the highest honor in hellish service. He became a user of voodoo, which seems to be a service of the utmost baseness and cruelty. I was told some of his deeds of cruelty, which are simply sickening. They made me long for an opportunity of helping to drive him back to hell. You might think, to look at him, that you could measure in some way the extent of his vileness. But it would be a vain hope. Monsters such as he is belong to an earlier and more rudimentary stage of barbarism. He is in his way a clever fellow, for a nigger, but is none the less dangerous or the less hateful for that. The men in the ship told me that he was a collector. Some of them had seen his collections. Such collections! All that was potent for evil in bird or beast or even in fish. Beaks that could break and rend and tear. All the birds represented were of a predatory kind. Even the fishes are those which are born to destroy, to wound, to torture. The collection, I assure you, was an object lesson in human malignity. This being has enough evil in his face to frighten even a strong man. It is little wonder that the sight of it put that poor girl into a dead faint. Nothing more could be done at the moment, so they separated. Adam was up in the early morning, and took a smart walk around the brow. As he was passing Diana's grove, he looked in on the short avenue of trees, and noticed the snakes killed on the previous morning by the mongoose. They all lay in a row, straight and rigid, as if they had been placed by hands. Their skins seemed damp and sticky, 
and they were covered all over with ants and other insects. They looked loathsome, so after a glance he passed on. A little later, when his steps took him, naturally enough, past the entrance to Mercy Farm, he was passed by the negro, moving quickly under the trees wherever there was shadow, laid across one extended arm, looking like dirty towels across a rail, he had the horrid-looking snakes. He did not seem to see Adam. No one was to be seen at Mercy except a few workmen in the farmyard. So, after waiting on the chance of seeing Mimi, Adam began to go slowly home. Once more he was passed on the way. This time it was by Lady Arabella, walking hurriedly and so furiously angry that she did not recognize him, even to the extent of acknowledging his bow. When Adam got back to Lesser Hill, he went to the coach-house, where the box with the mongoose was kept, and took it with him, intending to finish at the mound of stone what he had begun the previous morning with regard to the extermination. He found that the snakes were even more easily attacked than on the previous day. No less than six were killed in the first half-hour. As no more appeared, he took it for granted that the morning's work was over, and went towards home. The mongoose had by this time become accustomed to him, and was willing to let himself be handled freely. Adam lifted him up and put him on his shoulder and walked on. Presently he saw a lady advancing towards him, and recognized Lady Arabella. Hitheretofore the mongoose had been quiet, like a playful affectionate kitten. But when the two got close, Adam was horrified to see the mongoose in a state of the wildest fury, with every hair standing on end jump from his shoulder and run towards Lady Arabella. It looked so furious and so intent on attack that he called a warning. "'Look out! Look out! The animal is furious and means to attack!' Lady Arabella looked more than ever disdainful and was passing on. The mongoose jumped at her in a furious attack. Adam rushed forward with his stick, the only weapon he had. But just as he got within striking distance, the lady drew out a revolver and shot the animal, breaking his backbone. Not satisfied with this, she poured shot after shot into him till the magazine was exhausted. There was no coolness or hauteur about her now. She seemed more furious even than the animal, her face transformed with hate, and as determined to kill as he had appeared to be. Adam, not knowing exactly what to do, lifted his hat in apology and hurried on to Lesser Hill. End of chapter 7. This recording is in the public domain.